Hello, welcome to the Dear Writer podcast. I'm Sarah. And I'm Ashley. We're two aspiring collaborative authors sharing our writing journey with you. The ups, the downs, and everything in between. Whether you're just starting out or a more experienced writer, we hope that you'll find this podcast inspiring and thought-provoking. And here's the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Dear Writer. Uh, This is episode 51 and another one of our Talking Shop episodes. And like all of these shorter episodes, we should just jump straight into it so we don't run out of time. So, Sarah, what is your tool of the month this month? I have done something quite different this month. How exciting. Yeah, I sort of took a leaf out of your book. I was like, hmm, I might have a look at some articles and stuff because... Excellent. Yeah, I mean, I have been a bit short on time for various reasons this month. (laughs) But then, yeah, I also... As you all know, I am a registered nurse. And so I started thinking about the health benefits of kind of writing and reading. And I'm not really sure what got me started thinking on that, but it kind of made me think about why writing and fiction in particular is so important to society in general. So I started with that thought and then did a bit of research, which brought me to this article. And it's not directly related to writing, um, I will say. But I thought you all might be interested to know what you're providing the world with by writing fiction. <laughs> so <laughs> Doing a great service. Yeah. The name of the article is called Reading Fiction and Reading Minds, The Role of Simulation in the Default Network, which I know that probably doesn't make too much sense right now, but I will explain. Um, It's written by Diana I. Tamir, Andrew B. Bricker, David Doddle Feeder, and Jason P. Mitchell. And I hope I said all their names correctly, but (laughs) because it is more of a science article than writing article. So there were quite a few contributors to this one. So basically the article was exploring a specific pathway called the default network in the brain that activates and processes simulated experiences and so there have been some research done already that shows that fiction readers have higher empathy and score higher on theory of mind tasks so then your next question and unless you're a neurologist or something like that um, is probably going to be what is theory of mind (laughs) so yes good question Theory of mind is the ability to think about others' thoughts and feelings. So in essence, how well you can put yourself into someone else's shoes and by extension, predict their motives and understand their thoughts. Um, So people who are able to do this well have a high degree of what we call social cognition, um, which I found this quite interesting because I feel like it's quite a common stereotype that people who read a lot are introverted and aren't good communicators with others. It suggests that even if readers don't communicate with others, it's because they don't want to, not because they (laughs) don't know how (laughs) or don't understand what's going on. (laughs) So I thought that was kind of, I mean, that's my interpretation of that particular, like, I'm kind of like, you know, well, if, readers do have a higher social cognition and if readers can like read other people quite well as well well then to me like it's not that we're bad at communicating (laughs) 
<laughs> is that yeah. we're like, hey, yeah, I know you want me to, I don't know, like small talk or whatever, but I can't be, can't be bothered with that right now. Sorry. <laughs> And so that reminds me kind of like, you know, when you're at high school and there's those people that just read instead of like hanging out with people. I remember I did that occasionally and I'm like, it wasn't because like I didn't have friends or anything. It was just because I just couldn't be bothered dealing with the people (laughs) anymore. So I totally get that. And I feel like that's a common reason why. Yeah, yeah. And I think people like, you know, extroverts and people who are really social and don't read a lot. Um, not saying that all extroverts don't read, but I, you know, think that for those extroverts who don't read could misinterpret the reading and a solitary activity as not being able to socialize, which is like two completely different things. So I thought this article was quite interesting from that perspective. So basically, as I said, you know, like there's been some research done into this already, which shows like we already know that readers have of fiction have higher empathy and higher social cognition. So what the article and the study wanted to work out was whether particular types of literature did this and whether the quality or the vividness and a degree of social interactions in the literature had an effect on how the default network is utilized to get to this point. So the study does get quite complicated when talking about this network. (laughs) So I'm not (laughs) going to tell you like, you know, like the specific parts of the brain that are involved because basically all you need to know is that there are two main pathways within this default network which go through different areas of the brain. And the study found that one of these two pathways is switched on when reading scenes that have a high amount of detail and vividness in describing scenes. And the other pathway was better at analyzing social content and abstract writing passages. And so these default network pathways were not as actively engaged when the content of the writing was low in vividness and low in social interactions. So, you know, like if you've maybe got a nonfiction book or you've got a book of poorer quality, shall we say, that doesn't have as vivid scene setting, um, doesn't have as believable characters, you're not going to get the same degree of simulation, which causes these pathways to kind of switch on in the brain and therefore develop these great benefits so when we say that you know this is showing these benefits it's really quality writing that's showing these benefits (laughs) (laughs) but so quality writing that's funny it was also interesting not saying that nonfiction is not quality but obviously that was in a slightly separate category with having low social interactions so not all the time though I was kind of thinking to myself that what should we call it non-fiction there's a specific type of non-fiction which I feel is kind of similar to like novel writing it, the name has kind like, like memoir style I'm kind of narrative non-fiction that's what I'm searching for <laughs> I feel narrative nonfiction, you may still get some of these benefits because I think it has like a similar narrative structure to like a novel, right? But yes, so they also completed behavioral tests in this study 
and found that fiction readers were much more able to predict intentions behind an actor's actions, whether they were intending to cause harm or not was the main kind of thing. And the fiction readers compared to non-fiction readers had a higher degree of moral judgment when it came to what the actor's intentions were. And they rated it on a scale of like, this is permissible. This is like absolutely not permissible. So say an actor did an action which was unintentional and accidental, but caused a negative result versus an actor who, who did something intentionally wrong but then it ended up having a neutral result and didn't affect the person at all then the fiction readers more than the non-fiction readers would describe the scenario where the intention was to do harm as worse even though there was no harm done as worse than when there was an accident and you know something happened right. and it wasn't yep. intended so that's what they're talking about about sort of moral judgment which was quite interesting. <laughs> that is kind of interesting. Yeah. So my sum up of this article is that if you are a fiction reader, the research shows you have a high degree of empathy, moral judgment, and utilize networks in the brain that increase your ability to understand others' actions and thoughts, which as writers, I guess we all sort of know this anyway. But it is sort of cool to see it scientifically proven, I think. And yeah, yeah. so for me, I felt like this study also prompted a new question, which was whether we as fiction writers being the ones creating these works and usually being big readers ourselves show even greater social cognition and theory of mind. So next time someone accuses you of reading too much or living in a fantasy... You can tell them that actually <laughs> reading has been scientifically proven to help in understanding others and the world around you. So there you go. <laughs> Good summary, Sarah. I like that. I actually remember someone like saying that to me once as semi-insult. It was actually a friend that said it to me. And they're like, it was back in high school, like, oh, you know, actually the real world isn't like one of your novels. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, actually, it now that is. In hindsight, it is. <laughs> hilarious you're like I don't know what novels you're reading but clearly <laughs> yeah you need to improve your it's not working your quality you. <laughs> okay so what was your tool of the month Ashley I guess mine kind of links with the empathy theme which was unintentional but how excellent <laughs> so I have a basically this kind of month I've been flicking between are two books, one in third person, one in first person. And I was kind of getting, you know, it's kind of different writing in the two styles. And I was kind of looking for an article that sort of talked about, I was looking generally for benefits and drawbacks of, you know, different perspectives. And we've covered that in a podcast before, but it's mm -hmm. a, you know, it kind of gets a bit different when you're like really into the minutia of both of them. You know what I mean? Like you're looking for more. Yeah, but I came across an article which wasn't what I was looking for, but I found it very interesting. So I thought I'd share it with you. Um, it's called First Person versus Third Person. It's by Katie Gallant and Alison Eagles. And it's from a young adult fiction journal, uh, which is called, they call it YA Hotline. And it's a biannual journal by Dalhousie University. And this article comes from their 
their issue, which was entitled Empathy. So this is basically an article talking about whether or how first person or third person uh, narrative perspective influences the amount of empathy felt by the readers. And I was like, how intriguing. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So I thought I'd go over that with all of you and hopefully you can, I found some, you know, really interesting things from this. So hopefully you'll also get something new from it. So mm-hmm. basically their introduction explains that, you know, stories can be told from multiple different points of view. You've got first person where you're, the story is told from the perspective of the, of the participant of the story. And it's going to be using, you know, I, we, uh, words like that, or it can be in third person where there's like a quote unquote narrator um, who isn't really involved in the story that tells the story and they're using things like he she they and then you can get you know break that down into the omniscient and limited so omniscient is like this all seeing and the limited is like you're on the shoulder of the character if you want to know more about that you can listen to our previous podcast episode which is all about points of view I think it's called a matter of perspective so you can go check that out if you want to uh, know more that would be correct yeah can't remember what episode number it is, but yeah. matter of perspective, <laughs> yep. easy enough to find. But I feel like that's enough for you to grasp what this article is uh, going to be about. And right from the start, they explain that there's very, very limited research about how narrative voice influences the reader's ability to feel empathy. And they wanted to see, you know, which choice of perspective is best for trying to evoke emotions or evoke empathy in your readers so that you could have like, you know, a more targeted choice about which one you're going to use. So they then talk about, you know, this in the context of first person and then followed by it in the context of third person. So they start with the obvious uh, when talking about first person, that obviously if you're reading a story told directly from the perspective of a protagonist, it's going to influence empathy that is felt by the reader in some way. And a lot of studies have shown that that's most apparent in younger readers. So in first, if you're reading first person, it's younger readers that more quickly and automatically identify with the protagonists and you know, kind of gel with the characters, which I guess is why it's quite popular in YA to write from that first person perspective. Uh, And especially apparently that's uh, in the present tense as well. Like if you've got first person present tense, the young readers are like, aha, you like latch on. (laughs) However, they need, this is a quote, they need more guidance to actually reflect on the character from a distance. So like, yes, they, you know, identify really easily with the protagonist but they need help like objectively looking at the character kind of from an outside view which I guess can be an issue depending on what your story is about so then they go on the authors go on to reference a really interesting experiment which I found quite fascinating where they had two groups of people and they wrote a passage one so it was basically the exact same events except one passage is written in third person and the other passage is written in first person and then they were allocated one or the other and they were looking at the differences between like trust and empathy depending on whether it's first person or third person amongst the participants Uh, and they found that there was basically no difference in the amount of empathy that was evoked between the two groups However, third person significantly increased the trust of the character. And 
they're like well, it's probably yeah because they're like it's probably to do with the potential of the first person character being unreliable and they're like evidently readers you know know that like they're like if I'm reading from this person's point of view there's every chance that they're you know misleading me uh, so then they don't trust the character perspective as much and however the amount of empathy was the same which I found interesting I was like oh and then they're like the authors then go on to postulate that that is possibly why a multi-perspective first-person books have become so popular because you're able right. to sort of circumvent the mistrust that they have for the characters <laughs> by giving different characters views on the situation so you kind of get the best of both worlds when you're using multi-perspective so I thought that was very fascinating well I you know, I would have thought in some ways that it would be the other way around, although I guess it depends on how they define trust in the study as well, because yeah. I would have thought that, you know, if you can see a character's thoughts very clearly, that you, like a more direct line that you would trust the character more. But I suppose trusting the character doesn't necessarily mean trusting the events of the book like from the character's perspective if that makes sense so yeah like even if the character's trustworthy they might not be seeing everything as clearly as what they could be yeah I think that's sort of what they were hinting at you know it's like less objective so then you're like is everything you're saying true I'm not entirely sure like you know there's that right I'm not, yes yeah so yeah anyway so I found that really really interesting um, and the the whole that's why you have the multi-perspective books coming through um, mm. as well which kind of then makes sense it's like hmm, it does make sense yeah definitely um, does yes and I guess it's also having the multi-perspective is I guess quite good for the younger readers as well who like they say really struggle to like see characters objectively so when you've got other characters you know that can comment <laughs> <laughs> yeah. on you know each other that gives a lot more perspective and hope maybe helps you know the younger audiences sort of improves. see what they're supposed to see I guess Does it improves their empathy and social cognition <laughs> <laughs> yeah right so then they move on to talking about third person and they kind of say you know at the start that they weren't really sure from you know, a surface sort of look at it if the amount of empathy raised from third person books could be the same just you know, it seemed like it would be less. And they were quite interested from the original study that I mentioned before that there was no difference. Mm-hmm. They think that novels written from the third person actually might advance empathy rather than reduce it. And they say it's because you get a wider perspective of the character in the world. So you get a better understanding of, I guess, everything that's shaping them and affecting them kind of from a more zoomed out view, which then makes you develop more empathy. And they're also like, also the characters feel less self-centered. So people tend to uh, see themselves or like associate more with the characters in third person and I was like that's kind of funny and I can kind of get that at the same time (laughs) though I don't know that that's correct of our ancient Greece novel no 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 (laughs) despite being third person they're not (laughs) at least self-centered no so 
yeah, so they kind of sum up third person by saying third person allows the reader to learn more about the outside world and allows better description of the emotional state of the person from the third person perspective, which can also help you visualize the turmoil or whatever the character is going through and help create empathy at least just as effectively, if not more effectively than in first person. So I found that very interesting. It didn't help me with my third person versus first person whole thing, but it did kind of, you know, make me like very content with our choices of perspective and that, you know, you can still achieve the same, but similar outcomes using different perspectives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that was my article, which was first person versus third person in the journal YA Hotline. They had some fascinating articles in there if people wanted to go check it out. They're all um, open access and they have like themed issues. So they had ones like fantasy or like heaps and heaps of different ones. Interesting. So yeah, I started getting a little bit distracted. I was like, no, stay on track. (laughs) So anyways, we should probably move on to what we are reading for fun this month. So Sarah? As I said, I, despite, you know, talking about all the benefits of reading fiction, I have not read anything this month. So again, I took another leaf out of Ashley's book (laughs) and decided to go with, I wouldn't call it an old favorite because it's actually one that I read fairly recently, but it was last year when I read it and we weren't at this point last year, doing the Talking Shop episode, so I did not review it. It is one that I'm pretty sure everyone would have at least heard of, (laughs) but I thought I'd mention it anyway. So the book is Gone Girl by Gillian Flynn, and I just feel it's so expertly crafted that I couldn't help falling in love with the book, even though I didn't really like either of the two main characters. It's a brilliant example of a story that utilizes an unreliable narrator. Uh, So for those of you who have maybe heard of it but never read it, or maybe only ever watched the movie a long time ago and want to read the book, I would highly recommend it. I'm just going to read out the blurb for those of you who have no idea what Gone Girl is (laughs) all about. So marriage can be a real killer. On a warm summer morning in North Carthage, Missouri, it is Nick and Amy Dunn's fifth wedding anniversary. Our presents are being wrapped and reservations are being made when Nick's clever and beautiful wife disappears from their rented McMansion on the Mississippi River. Husband of the year Nick isn't doing himself any favors with cringeworthy daydreams about the slope and shape of his wife's head, But passages from Amy's diary reveal the alpha girl perfectionist could have put anyone dangerously on edge. Under mounting pressure from the police and the media, as well as Amy's fiercely doting parents, the town golden boy parades an endless series of lies, deceit, and inappropriate behavior. Nick is oddly evasive, and he's definitely bitter, but is he really a killer? As the cops close in, every couple in town is soon wondering how well they know the one that they love. With his twin sister, Margot, at his side, Nick stands by his innocence. Trouble is, if Nick didn't do it, where is that beautiful wife? And what was in that silvery gift box hidden in the back of her bedroom closet? 
how intriguing yeah it is obviously a bit of a mystery psychological thriller and I enjoyed it immensely even as I said even though I did not connect as such with the characters (laughs) it kind of sounds like one that you maybe aren't supposed to connect with the characters a little bit I felt you were definitely supposed to connect more with Nick maybe but at the same time could go either way and (laughs) yeah yeah they obviously have some quite large issues going on in their their lives which can yeah like make it hard to connect because you're like well you've kind of brought this upon yourselves (laughs) this is of your own doing yeah exactly it's very amusing so what was your uh book that you've been reading this month well like sarah I, well, okay. I have actually been doing a lot of beta reading this month, like a lot. So I have been reading. It's just, I obviously can't review what I've been reading on the podcast is sort of the issue. So, and I've actually been doing quite a bit of writing as well, which has been good. So I haven't started any new books this month. But I did think I would review one of my like all-time favorite series because I love it so much and thought I would share it with you because you should all read it. So I thought I'd just review the first book of the series and then maybe if you find it intriguing and enjoy it, you can continue reading it on your own. So the first book um, of this series is called The Sky Stone by Jack White and it's book one of the Dream of Eagles series or some people call it the Camelot Chronicles. It's historical fiction and it's probably this book series that started my love of the historical fiction genre it's one of those great books that retells the story of king arthur but puts it into like the real world like where there's like no magic or anything and you know how all of the myths could have come from true events right which is great I love that and it's actually quite amusing how I ended up reading the series so a few episodes of Talking Shop ago I talked about a book called Song of the Hills and I discovered that book because a friend of mine from Canada came to visit and she didn't want to carry her books home so she left it behind in my room she actually left two books behind one book was Song of the Hills the second book was The Sky Stone by Jack White. <laughs> and I didn't touch them for ages because they've got kind of dreary looking covers and they looked kind of boring. And then one day I had like read everything in my book collection. And I was like, you know what, Caitlin, um, I'm going to read this book that you left behind. And I was like, well, both of them are excellent, but this one in particular. So I thought I'd just read the blurb for you. Uh, so I thought I'd first put in the tagline, which was the boy who would be king, which I thought was very good, given it's about King Arthur and everything. So the blurb's quite long, so you have to bear with me. So everyone knows the story of how Arthur pulled the sword from the stone, how Camelot came to be, and how power struggles ultimately destroyed Arthur's dreams. But what of the times before Arthur and the forces that created him? How did the legend really come to pass? Before the time of Arthur and his Camelot, Britain was a dark, deadly place savaged by warring factions of Picts, Celts, and invading Saxons. The Roman citizens who had lived there for three generations were suddenly faced with a deadly choice. Leave and take up residence in a corrupt Roman world that was utterly foreign, or stay and face the madness that would ensue when the Roman legions, Britain's last bastion of safety for the civilized world, leave. 
For two Romans, Publius Varus and his friend Caius Botanicus, there can only be one answer. They will stay to preserve what's best of Roman life and they will create a new culture out of the wreckage. In doing so, Publius and Caius will unknowingly plant the seeds of legend, for these two men are Arthur's great-grandfathers, and their actions will shape a nation and forge a sword known as Excalibur. So it is very excellent. Lots of great, like, ancient fighting, but also it's really cool how they weave in real elements into how they think, like, the story comes to be. Like, for example, this isn't really spoiling anything. Basically, a a meteor crashes into the Earth uh, in, like, the first few chapters. And they discover that it's got, like, metal in there that's, like, super, super strong, which they then spend, like, generations trying to figure out how to use to make swords and things. So you can kind of imagine where that goes. But anyway, so, yeah, so it's, like, very interesting stuff like that. I haven't actually read the last two books of the series because I really don't want it to end and I can't bring myself to do it. (laughs) So I have them sitting on my shelf and every now and then I'm like, I should read it. And I was like, oh, but if I read it, it'll be over. That's funny. So I haven't done it. I'm usually like too desperate to finish. I mean, oh. like I get to the end and it's sad, but I'm just like, mm. I remember I read the third one at the flat that we used to live in together. Right. And I think yeah. it's one of the last books that I've read in like a day and it's like 600 pages. I don't even think I slept. <laughs> I just remember sitting there like, oh my gosh, must get to the end. So yeah, would highly recommend it if that's your kind of thing. Anyways, we should probably wrap up, right? Yeah. So if you would like to be on our author spotlight section, um, you can go to our website at www.lindersoncreations.com. And if you click on the podcast button in the main menu, it'll show a drop down and bring you to a page to be featured on Dear Writer. And next time on Dear Writer, it's one of our main episodes and we're going to be, last time we talked about first, this time we're going to talk about lasts (laughs) Um, and endings. So things like endings of our novels, of our chapters, and also maybe even endings of series. So that should be a very interesting conversation, I think. Mm -hmm. Yep. And if you want to know more about us and our writing projects, you can visit us at lindersoncreations.com or contact us on Facebook or Instagram under the handle Linderson Creations you enjoy the show then please rate and review us on apple podcasts subscribe on your podcatcher of choice tell your friends about us we'll be back next week happy writing everyone